right, good morning. How are you guys? Good. My name is Pete, and uh, it's an honor to be back with you guys. I always love uh, hanging with you guys here, especially in the summer. Uh, it's a little more enjoyable than the winter, but either way, it's always a blast uh, to be here. Uh, I want to welcome those of you who might be at Grosil or Brighton, those of you who are watching online. We're so glad that uh, you guys are with us as well. And uh, I hope everybody's having a great summer. And I don't know what it is that you like to do in the summer, whether it's going to the beach or being out on a boat or next to a pool or hiking or camping or like, I love all that stuff. I love everything about summer. And um, one of the things I've been trying to get back into a little bit, I used to play a lot of golf, like way too much golf. So I took a break for about a decade and uh, my kids are getting to an age now where I can actually kind of take them out. And so I can do a little golfing and, you know, check it off as good parenting. And so um, this past weekend, I took them golfing uh, and we were down south, really, really extremely hot day, probably 95 degrees. And if it's hot in the summer, if you play golf, you know, you want to go the earlier the tea time, the better. Uh, however, uh, my kids sleep in until like there's an earthquake or I wake them up. So uh, finally, about one o'clock in the afternoon, we get to the golf course, which is the worst time. To, I think we actually have a picture of, of uh, me with the boys. Uh, this is before we started when we were still having fun. And um, so we get there and we go into the little clubhouse and check in and everything. And like, there's this cooler of Gatorade and we're already hot. Just like walking to the clubhouse, we're hot. And the boys are like, can we get like some Gatorade before we go out there, dad? I'm like, no, we don't need any Gatorade. It's like three bucks a bottle and it's got sugar in it and all that. Like, you don't need that, right? So there'll be some water in these little coolers out on the course and we'll you know, get it out there. So we start to play and I don't know, we're like on a second hole. We're already dying. We're walking. We're just covered in sweat. It's hard to even see like the swing at the ball because you got sunscreen and your eyes are burning and we're just miserable. And, uh, and there's no water out there. I don't know why, but we couldn't find a water cooler anywhere. So pretty much every hole, my boys are like, you know, it's hole two. And they're like, can we please go back and get some Gatorade? I'm no, you don't need any Gatorade. Come on, we got this, you know, hole four, dad, please, can we go get some Gatorade? I'm like, if you bring up the Gatorade one more time, I'm going to take you back to the car and spank you, which they know I'm, I'm just teasing them. I haven't had to spank them in like a long time. And so uh, we're on hole, I think it was six, maybe could have been seven. Again, we're dying. And my son's like, hey, uh, when you take me back to the car to spank me, could you give me a Gatorade? <laughs> he, you know, he's like finally at that place. We, we hit hole number nine, which was our last hole, by the way. We go in and I buy two Gatorades for each of us, right? Like it's who, who cares at that point? I don't care if it's sugar. I don't care if it's $10 a bottle. We are about to die. It's wet and we need it. All right. And there's something about thirst that drives you to a place of making decisions that you might not have made when you weren't thirsty, right? There's something about your thirst, especially when you're really thirsty, that you don't, you could care less what you're drinking. Like, you need your thirst quenched, and whatever's in front of you is what you're going to grab. And uh, there's this interesting story in Scripture that I want to kind of share with you about a woman who is thirsty. And um, this is going to be a story, especially if you've kind of grown up in church or been around church for long. You've heard this story probably dozens of times, but I really want to encourage you today. Listen, don't rush to the end. Don't shut me out because you're like, I know the story. I know where it's going. 
or just listen to it with fresh ears, right? You're here anyway, why not? Listen to it with fresh ears because this story is really important because it's about more than just this encounter that Jesus has with this woman at the well. This story, if you listen to it, to really kind of apply it to your life, but what this story does is it teaches us how the God of the universe views us. And more importantly, it teaches us how the God of the universe like views thirsty people and how he treats them. It's a really interesting story. So uh, it starts in kind of John chapter four. That's where we're going to begin. Let me give you just quick background on, on this whole story so you kind of understand what's going on. There is an Assyrian king. This is, so this would be like 720 BC. So this is a long time before this actual event takes place we're going to read about today. There's an Assyrian king by the name of Sargon, and he comes into Israel and he conquers the portion of Israel where this story that we're going to look at today takes place. And what he does is he exports the Jews out of that area to other parts of Israel, and he brings in some other nationalities. So what happens over time are these other nationalities intermarry with some of the other Jews that had been left behind in this region, and they create kind of this, uh, this mixed nationality that they call the Samaritans. All right, so this region that we're looking at today is called Samaria, and um, w- what happened, because there were no purebred Jews left in Samaria, because over the years they had intermarried with these other nationalities, that the other Jews in Israel looked at this group of people, the Samaritans, with, uh, they, they viewed them in a very racist way. They treated them uh, in a very racist way. They looked down on them as if they were less than they were because there were no purebred Jews in this area. Um, so much so, there's an event that took place about 20 years before the time of the story we're about to look at. And uh, this, this event didn't take place in the Bible, but we read about it from actual, actually a secular historian by the name of Josephus who writes about this event taking place where a group of Samaritans actually scatter human bones in the temple courts, which is like the most offensive thing that the Samaritans could have done towards the Jews. It's just one more thing, one more reason for the Jews to look down on the Samaritans. And so they had so much disdain for the Samaritans and for Samaria that if a Jew were going from the northern part of the region to the southern part, uh, or from the southern part to the northern part, as Jesus is about to do in this story, normally what they would do is even though it's faster to go straight through Samaria, they would actually go around Samaria. They're like, we hate that region so much and we hate those people so much. We don't want to have any association with them and we'll literally go around it even though it takes more time and more money to do so instead of having to actually go through and interact with Samaritans in any way. Understanding this kind of helps this whole story. You have to understand that the Jews did not like this region. They did not like the people in this region. The Jews felt towards the Samaritans the way a lot of you guys feel towards Ohio. It's like... (laughs) We're going to avoid it like at all costs. It, I just, I've just never seen a group of people dislike another state as much as you guys do. Like, it, I've just never seen anything like, and, and, and I know, and then somehow like celebrate it in the house of the Lord. I don't even know how that works, but you pull it off and you pull it off well. So you understand a little bit about what it was like to be a Jew and dislike the Samaritans. All right. So 
That's what's taking place there, right? So let's pick up the story in John chapter 4. It says, when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. It's interesting because we know he actually didn't have to go through Samaria, right? Geographically speaking, he could have went around Samaria. So what is John saying here? Well, if you actually look at the Greek here, it's essentially saying that this was a divine appointment. In other words, what John wants us to know about this encounter that's about to happen between Jesus and this woman that we know as the woman at the well, it's not an accident, right? Jesus didn't just stumble into this conversation with this woman. This is a divine appointment. This was supposed to happen. So it says he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground of Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's, that would be like the middle of the day, all right? When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So right off the bat, she's completely taken back. Like, she's like, you're a Jew. Again, she has no idea this is Jesus. <laughs> she has no idea this is the Son of God. Just the very fact that he is a male and he's a Jew, she cannot grasp and understand why he would even speak to her. So she's like, How? like what are you doing? Why are you asking me for a drink of water? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. This isn't supposed to happen. This conversation shouldn't be taking place. Now, a couple interesting things uh, about this lady that we know from Scripture. Uh, the first is obvious uh, if you have read through the story, but this woman has a past. We're going to hear about it in just a second. Um, but Scripture tells us in the story that this woman's been married five times and the man that she's living with right now is not her husband. Now, what it doesn't tell us is why. So it's real easy to, you know, make all kinds of judgments about her and her, her life. But honestly, we don't know. Like, yes, it's, it seems unusual. Like, and again... It, being married five times in our culture, is, is, it happens, it certainly happens, but it's, it's still kind of unusual. In Jesus' culture, it was highly unusual. So we don't know. I mean, you know, there's a chance maybe she can't have kids. And in this culture, like one of the primary roles of a woman in a marriage would have been to bear children. Uh, they had a pretty siloed view of women in this culture in this day and age. And so if a woman couldn't have had kids, it's possible that she'd get married and the husband wasn't able to have kids with her. And so she was just discarded over and over and over again. We, we, again, we have no idea why. What we do know for a fact is that life has left her thirsty. In other words, life hasn't turned out the way she thought life was going to turn out. She's met disappointment after disappointment, heartbreak after heartbreak. She has a past, and she also lives in a small town in Samaria. If you've ever lived in a small town or been in a small town for any length of time, you know in a small town, everybody knows everything about you. So she has a past, and it's a public past. So that's one thing we know about her. Uh, we also know she's a Samaritan. I've already discussed the ramifications of that. So... She's got a lot of strikes against her in this particular culture. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. She's a Samaritan woman with a past. 
And the Jews had this kind of weird um, view of sin and impurity. For, for a Jew, everything was about clean and unclean. And if something was unclean, it was possible that that unclean could make other things unclean. So if you are an unclean person, which is what the Jews would have thought about this particular woman, she's unclean, then everything that she touches, whether it's another human being or whether it's food or whatever, whatever she touches then becomes unclean. So they had this kind of whole weird view. It's like spiritual cooties. Like, right? It's like she has spiritual cooties. So no one wants to touch her. No one wants to be around her. No one wants to be associated with her. Because if you get around this, this impurity, it's possible that somehow it could be transferred from her or from whoever's impure to you. So you're going to avoid it at all costs. All right? So she has a past. She's a Samaritan. The other thing we know about her from this story is she's really lonely. I don't know if you caught the little detail when we were reading the first part of this story, but she comes to fetch water from this well at uh, the middle of the day. It's the hottest part of the day, right? Just like nobody plays golf at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, no woman is going to go to the well and get water at high noon. Women in this culture always went and got water in the morning, in the cool of the day. And another thing is they usually never went alone. They always went in a pack. There was always a group of them. And they did this not only for socialization, but they did this for protection. It had been very dangerous for a woman to travel like this by herself to fetch water. So it just doesn't make sense that she's there by herself and she's there at the middle of the day. It doesn't make sense unless you have a past like she has a past. Then you know exactly why she's doing it this way. Right? She's full of shame. And the last thing she wants to do is be with another group of women who are going to look down on her. She's tired of traveling with them and hearing all the different whispers as they whisper about her past. She's tired of the little glances that she gets from all of them that makes and reminds her that she's less than they are. Like if you've ever been in a situation where you're full of shame, you know how you avoid groups and you avoid people. And even if you go to church, you're gonna kind of slide in at the last second. You're gonna sit towards the back. You don't want anybody to talk to you or anybody to look at you. You're kind of the same way in your social life. At the very heart of shame is this belief that you have that you're undeserving of love. It's a really weird dynamic because people who have a lot of shame, it's this intensely painful feeling or believing that, you, that you're flawed and that you're so flawed that you are not worthy of love and belonging. And so even if somebody tries to show you kindness, it's almost like you push those kind of people away because you've convinced yourself that you're not worthy. That's where she's at. She doesn't feel like she's worthy of love. She doesn't feel like she's worthy of belonging. She doesn't deserve to be able to hang out with the other women and go fetch water at the normal time of day when everybody else would do it. So she's going to go at the hottest part of day so she doesn't have to see anybody, so she doesn't have to be judged by anybody. And, and this is the way she's living her life. Shame makes you feel trapped and powerless and isolated. And so you have to understand her surprise in this moment when she walks up to this well and who is waiting there for her? Jesus. I mean, how cool is this? Like God in the flesh is sitting by a well waiting for this woman. This woman who doesn't even think that she is worthy to travel in a group of other women because of her past. 
And yet the God of the universe in the flesh, Jesus himself is sitting by a well waiting for her. That's powerful. Who is she that Jesus would be at the well waiting on her? Who am I that God would wait on me? Like, isn't it amazing that God cares so much about every single one of us that he actually creates these encounters with us where he'll wait for us, right? I mean, it gives me chills, like, to think that for some of you right now, this is a God-created encounter, this moment. Like, it is not an accident that you're watching this online. It's not an accident that you're sitting where you're sitting. But like the God of the universe has brought you here in this moment to if you're willing to have an encounter with you where he shows you how he views you and what he thinks about you. Who are we that God would do that for us? This is an incredible moment. And when Jesus just says to her, hey, could, could I have a drink of water? You have to understand, he's not really asking for something here. He's communicating to her how he views her. By simply acknowledging her and asking her for a drink of her water, what he's saying to her is, hey, I see you. Hey, I'm not afraid to talk to you. I'm not afraid to touch you. I'm not afraid to receive water from you. He's saying to her, hey, maybe everybody in your life has judged you and put you down. Maybe you don't think you're worthy of the attention of another individual. But I want you to know right now, I'm not judging you. I'm not looking at your past. I'm not looking at who you were yesterday. I'm believing this moment for who you could become tomorrow. And if you've ever been trapped where you have a group of people or even another individual who just can't let go of something you've done, ever felt that way? I have. Where they've taken your worst moment, they took your worst season, they took your worst decision you've ever made, and they just hold it over your head, and they can't let it go, they can't see past it, they cannot let go of who you were yesterday. See, Jesus is not like that. It's not like that at all. And that's why there's a couple really important things from this story that apply to our lives. I'm going to give you two of them. The first one is this. Truth number one, your past is not a problem for God. It's just not. Believe me, your past is a much bigger problem for you than it is for God. Watch how this story unfolds. This is great. This is verse uh, 10. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and he drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? She didn't really know where he's kind of going with this, right? He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about grace. He's talking about forgiveness. She's just thinking about this well. And she's like, you have something better than this well? Because the well did represent her source of life. So she's like, if you got something better, I'd like to get in on that. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Like, she still doesn't really get it, does she? 
She, she doesn't really totally understand what it is that he's talking about, but she starts to understand that this guy is different and this guy can offer her something that nobody else has been able to offer her. And then Jesus does something. That, man, I, sometimes you read this, what he does next, and you're like, oh, Jesus, why did you have to do that? Like, wh- like, this seems like the most politically incorrect thing he could have done in this moment. Look what happens. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and, and come back. And I imagine there's just this long, silent pause. And finally, she says, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man that you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Man, that sting is right there, doesn't it? Like all of a sudden, she probably feels like she's been completely uncovered. She probably feels very vulnerable in this moment. And it's like, Jesus, why... Why would you do that? I'll tell you why I think he does this right here. I think there's two things that might not be obvious if you're just kind of skimming through the story. The first is this is kind of a setup. The very fact that he knows everything about her is kind of a cue for her to say, oh, wow, this is not a normal guy. Somehow he knows everything about me. But at a deeper level, and more importantly, what I think is going on here is Jesus is setting her up to say, listen, I'm about to offer you the most amazing gift that's ever been offered to you. Eternal life, grace, love, belonging. And I want you to know on the front end that you don't necessarily deserve this gift and you certainly didn't earn this gift. It's just yours, regardless of what you've done. Like, you didn't like make a series of really right decisions that somehow earned you this gift. It's a gift, it's free. It's for you. See, there's a temptation for all of us who claim to be Christians, for those of us who have claimed to put our trust in Jesus. And, and um, the temptation is that we start with this very simple truth. I'm a sinner and I need Jesus, right? We start with this very simple truth that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. But what happens over time is we're tempted to start to think that, oh, we, no, we earn that. Like, I did some good things. Like, I went to church a bunch, and I got in a small group, and I started giving, and I started, like, to learn more about the Bible, and I started to make lots of really, really, really good decisions. And so it's really easy to start to think, oh, I earned that gift. And so Jesus is trying to stand in front of you, I just want to remind you, like, I know the whole deal. Like, this isn't something you've earned or something you deserve, but it doesn't bother me. Just here. This is for you, this living water, this eternal life, this belonging, this love, this acceptance, this grace, it's yours. And by calling out the reality of her life, the other gift he gives her is being fully known and fully loved. See, whether you realize it or not, ultimately that's what you're chasing after in life, every human being. What we want more than anything else, we have this desire to be fully known and fully loved. And the reality is you can only be loved to the extent that you are known, right? You can only be loved to the extent that you are known. The way that dynamic plays out practically in relationships, whether it's a marriage relationship or even a friendship, is uh, let's say it's a marriage and you have two people and one of them has a series of secrets that they're keeping from the other person. 
When the other person looks them in the eyes and says, I love you. The person with the secrets hears those words, but those words do not register. Those words do not seek, sink deep down into their heart. Why? They hear the words, I love you, spoken to them, but they can't receive them because you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. So what happens is in that moment, they think to themselves, yeah, you say that you love me, but if you really knew the things I did, you wouldn't be saying that. And unfortunately, they walk away from that exchange, never receiving the love that was extended to them because you can only be loved to the extent that you are known. There would have been this temptation with this woman to walk away from this exchange thinking, wow, I'm so grateful for that man. I'm so thankful for the love and the acceptance he showed me. But oh, if he had known about my past, he would have never offered me that. So Jesus just kind of calls it out to make sure she understands, no, 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 listen. This is, not, this is not strings attached grace. This is you are fully known and you are fully loved in this moment. Whew. Can you imagine the weight that came off of that woman in this moment? What a beautiful gift. Here's truth number two that applies to all of us is you have a thirst that only God can quench. You do. All of us do. We have a thirst that only God can quench. Look how it plays out in this story, verse 25. It says, the woman said, I know that the Messiah, Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, that, that's, key right there, right? Leaving the thing that, that really represents her ongoing thirst in life. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and they made their way towards him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. It's a, this is such a cool story. I, I just love this, that God uses this thirsty woman, this Samaritan woman, this Samaritan woman with a past, this Samaritan woman with a past that had caused her to be covered in shame. He uses her to transform an entire region. There's this beautiful truth here, this beautiful reminder that your mess can actually become your message. That's what happens with her. Right? She takes the very thing that she wanted to hide so much, the very thing that had caused so much shame and so much pain in her life. She took that mess. God transformed her and her mess became her message. So maybe it's possible that that thing that embarrasses you so much, that season of your life that you try so hard to cover up, what if God actually wanted to use that mess to become part of your message so other people could be reminded of the radical love and grace and acceptance of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful concept that God can take our mess and he can turn it into our message. But how's the mess happen in the first place? So we talked about we all have this thirst, right? Um, I don't remember exactly at what point in my life I started to realize that I was thirsty, but I remember there were some key events for me. 
Um, I was 15 when my parents went through a divorce. I remember that being a, a pretty like key moment in my life where uh, I started to question some things about my identity, uh, my acceptance, my love. Um, I remember being 16, but no, 17, between 17, when this girl that I thought I was deeply in love with broke up with me, and I thought the world was over in that moment. And I started to have all these questions about, was I not attractive enough? Was I not, like, funny enough? Was my personality not engaging enough? Was I not cool enough? Like, what was it about me? Right? And I remember having this thirst for, you know, acceptance. This thirst for love. This thirst for just belonging. And when you have a thirst in life, and you've all had... Thirst. I don't know when you first kind of discovered your thirst, but you start reaching out for things to quench the thirst, right? And there's no shortage of things in this world that promise to quench your thirst, right? So for some of you got thirsty and you're like, it's got to be a relationship. I just need a man. I just need a woman. I just need someone to love me. And I know if, if I could ever get that, then I would finally feel complete. And for others of you, it's like knowledge. Oh, it's, I, I, gotta, I gotta get smarter. I need another degree. And then maybe I'll finally like, find belonging and love. And for some of you, it was all about money. Notice how I did green there? And um, you, you just thought, like, if I just need more money, just a little more money. I, that, maybe, maybe, okay, that didn't do it. But maybe if I make a little more next year, that could, I'll finally get to the place where like I'm just satisfied. And for some of you, uh, it was sex. I don't know why I picked white. That's the wrong color there. But, uh, and, and then for some of you, it was religion. And it's like, it was, it's going to be all about religion. That could do it. But nope, that didn't work. So maybe it's another relationship. Or no, it's going to be social media. It's, if I could get one more like, if I, could just, if I could just get that guy just to like that picture, right? If he would just leave a comment, I know, oh gosh, that would feel so great. And maybe it's, I can find it at the mall. Or maybe it's going to be another relationship. And it's like around and around we go and we try all these different things trying to quench this thirst. And then the million dollar question becomes how much sand does it take to quench our thirst? And the obvious answer is no amount of sand can ever quench your thirst. What does it do? It just compounds the thirst. Oh man, if you can, the earlier in life you can begin to understand this, like not to point anybody out, but my guess is there's probably a couple 15, 16, 17 year olds in this room right now are watching online. Um, mm. I've got kids that age. The stuff that you guys face in our culture today, you're bombarded by so much. It just makes you thirsty. And at that age, you're so vulnerable to just think, oh, if I could just get that guy to love me, if I could just get him to show me some attention, if I could just get, that, if I could just get better grades, if I could just get accepted to that college, like if I could just be accepted by that group, if they would just let me sit at that table. Oh man, there's a lot of sand out there promising to quench your thirst. And the sooner in your life you can realize that sand does nothing, nothing but compound the thirst. 
You'll save your heart a lot of heartbreak. Um, yeah. They need you. They need your encouragement. They really do. Um, if you've ever been through any kind of treatment before, if you've ever been through a 12-step program, um, if you've ever been in treatment, uh, you probably know about this acronym called HALT. Um, for those of us who've been through recovery, it's a really important acronym. HALT, H-A-L-T, stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And the idea is if you want to keep your sobriety, you have to keep check on those four emotions and feelings. Because at any one time that you're hungry or you're angry or you're lonely or you're tired, you know that you are most susceptible in that moment to losing your sobriety. Right? It's in that moment where you feel hungry or angry or lonely or tired that you are most tempted to engage in some kind of self-harmful behavior. And so you're trained for that emotion or that feeling to be an instant red flag of, Ooh, I got to be real careful about the decisions that I make. You can't always avoid being hungry or angry or lonely or tired. You just have to be aware that when you feel that way, you better like perk up to all the decisions that you're made. You better check in with your sponsor or your friend or your loved one and say, this is how I'm feeling. I need to kind of check myself right before I you know, move, move forward with any kind of decisions in my life. So it's called halt. It's like, whoa, stop, pause, wait. And I think this applies to everybody, not just people in recovery, but you, you, you have to be aware of the seasons and the moments in your life where you are going to be most tempted with your thirst to go try to quench that thirst from something that can't actually help you, but only compounds the thirst that you have. Psalm 63 kind of reminds us of this. It says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. What the psalmist is saying is that this world does not have ultimately what you need. As amazing as this world is, right? And God created it and he said, it is good. But it was never designed ultimately to quench your thirst. It just doesn't have what you're looking for. And I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves. Like it, it, it just doesn't. We are wired for a thirst, but this world cannot quench that thirst. So in closing, I, I just want you to think about this. First of all, you're wired for thirst. Every one of us. You don't have to apologize for that. You don't have to feel bad about that. You are wired for thirst. Secondly, there are all kinds of things in this world that are going to promise to quench that thirst, but they can't. And because you are human, because you are imperfect, every one of us, you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. You're going to find yourself again and again and again and again, grabbing some kind of sand, hoping it's going to quench your thirst, but it's only going to compound it. And what Jesus ultimately wants us to know through Scripture is that even though you have failed again and again and again, you still are worthy of his love and belonging. I don't care what your shame tells you. I don't care what your guilt tells you. You are worthy of love and belonging. See, the problem... Yeah. The problem isn't your thirst. Everybody thirsts. 
the problem for a bunch of us today is we're just standing in front of the wrong well. Right? And we're expecting that that well to somehow give us something. It was the never designed to give us. And so I'm just wondering today, there's a couple different scenarios. There's some of you that are here and you're a Christian and maybe you've uh, been a Christian for a while and you've received those living waters that Jesus was talking about in the story. You received his gift of salvation. You've asked for forgiveness. But you know where you're going when you die. Like that's, that's all taken care of. But you've drifted. Let's just be honest. You've drifted. And there's something out there that promised you it could quench the thirst and you bought in. You went all after it. And maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was money. Maybe it was a job. Who knows what it was. But it's left you thirsty. And for you today, it's just like you need to be reminded that yes, you have a thirst, but your thirst is not the problem. The problem is you're standing at the wrong will. And that's all today is for you. It's just a, it's a, it is a wake up call to say, oh, did it again. I need to come back to Jesus. He is the only one that can give me the love and the belonging that ultimately I'm looking for. There's also maybe some of you that are here, you, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've never received those living or those eternal waters. You've never gotten to that place to just say, I am a sinner and I desperately need your forgiveness. See, here's what we, we really believe this. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And maybe for you today, it's just a matter of you putting your faith and trust in Jesus. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to come forward. We don't want to embarrass you in any way. It's as simple as just sitting where you're sitting. Just saying a little prayer along with me in your heart. So I'm going to ask everybody just to bow their head and close their eyes. And just right now, if you're here and life has left you thirsty and you are desperate for love and for belonging and for forgiveness, let me tell you, this is your encounter. This is your encounter with the divine. This is your encounter with Jesus. This is your at the well moment. And it's as simple as you right now, just praying in your heart and saying, dear God, with as much as I understand about you in this moment, I want to ask for your son Jesus to come into my life. I want to ask for what he did on the cross to be applied to my sin problem. I understand that I haven't earned this. I don't deserve this. This is a free gift that you're extending to me in this moment and I want to receive it. I want eternal life with you. The scriptures teach us that this very simple confession is the beginning of eternity with him. I know, I know, trust me, I know it sounds too good to be true. You feel like there's got to be more. Surely there's something else you got to do. But scripture's real clear on this. It's a simple confession of our mouth and our heart God, we're grateful that you've met us at the will today. God, we're grateful that no matter how many times we stray from you, trying to get our thirst quenched in other ways, that you don't meet us with judgment. You don't meet us with anger. You meet us with your kindness, with your grace, with your love. You meet us with wide open arms that are there ready to accept us and welcome us home whenever we're ready to come home. God, who are we that you would wait by the will for us?
Who are we that you would divine these, create these divine encounters where you meet us like this? We're so grateful, overwhelmed, overwhelmed with your love and your acceptance in this moment. God, we love you. We're grateful for it's in your holy and your precious name that we pray. Amen. Uh, real quick before you guys take off, this is really important. Uh, if you're here today and maybe you made that decision, maybe you prayed that prayer to just say, you know what, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. Uh, we would love to come alongside you, get you some material, just encourage you. All you have to do is text the word Northridge to 313131, um, and we'll send you a text back with just some next steps. Uh, wow, we would love to do that. We want you to know you're not alone in this journey, and we want to come alongside you. Um, this is just the beginning, guys, of an incredible summer journey here at Northridge. Uh, I hope that you have an amazing week, and uh, we'll see you next weekend right here. God bless. Oh